the Bible, the foundation to this church, the foundation to many of our lives. If you're a guest, we've been really focusing on the Bible the last six weeks. All the way back to the beginning of March, uh, we kind of followed along with the History Channel's uh, presentation of the miniseries, The Bible. And it was a great experience for our family here at Florida Bible because uh, many of us were able to engage family members who uh, previously didn't express much interest in the Bible or the things of God. And, and many of us, too, learned many new things about the Bible ourselves. One of the things that excited me the most was the report coming back from so many of our family members here that after the first uh, week, they started watching the, uh, the series with their Bibles open. They started looking at the Bible and saying, is that what it really says? And that was all about because we need to make sure that we understand what the Bible really teaches and what it doesn't teach. Now, I want to continue this theme with the Bible through May because I think it's so important to our time. It is so important to our lives that we really get a grasp on this collection of 66 ancient manuscripts that we today call the Bible, God's Holy Word. You know, the Bible makes some pretty big claims about itself. For example, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, of itself, the Bible declares that the word of God is living and active. In other words, it says that this is not just a literary collection of 66 ancient manuscripts, but that these manuscripts are alive. They are active. They are relative. In fact, it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible, in reading the Bible, in studying the Bible, has the power to cut through all of our hypocrisy, to cut through our phonies, our phonies to cut through our excuses, to cut through all of all this baggage that we carry. It has the power to reveal to ourselves, as God already knows, who we really are, and as we read it, all these defenses we make up and all these excuses that we put together just kind of just are cut away. Why? Because it's active. It's alive. It has a powerful force for our lives today. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible declares this of itself, all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, that these 40-some authors who wrote these 66 ancient manuscripts that are collected today in the book that we call the Bible were inspired by God to write what they wrote. Now, please understand that they are not God-dictated. The first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis. It was written by Moses. When, when Moses was writing the book of Genesis, God didn't say, okay, uh, get your pen, get your quill, get your tablet, whatever you're doing here, Moses, and, and, and start, start writing. In, in, the, the, begin, beginning, God, God, create, create. No, it didn't go like that. God inspired these authors with the thoughts and with the truths and with the commands and with the guidelines that he wanted all mankind to know as he tried to restore our relationship with him that was broken when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. But is it really alive? Is it really active? Is it really, truly inspired by God himself? Or is it, as so many, and increasingly in our institution of higher learning, who are declaring, no, it's man's myth. It's just a collection of writings by simple, ordinary, 
non-inspired men, some with good intentions to, to make life better and to teach valuable truths, some who are con artists who just want to manipulate people and create this false religion and get them to give money to them. So is it God's word or is it man's myth? Now, that answer is important to every one of us here, everyone on the planet. But it's really important for those of us who are are here today, who are in church today. You know why? Because the Bible demands a lot of us. When you come here to services or when you come to one of our weekly Bible studies or when you visit another Bible teaching church, what you hear week after week is this. The Bible says that you should do this. The Bible declares that you should act this way. The Bible declares. It's very demanding on our lives. For example, the Bible says in Luke 6.35, Jesus himself speaking, love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Because we follow the Bible and the teaching of the Bible, we are to respond in a way that is so contrary to our human nature and so contrary even to culture. Because culture says get even. Culture says don't let anybody walk all over you like that. God says, no. In the Bible, I'm giving you a higher call. And I'm saying you should love your enemies. That's pretty hard to do with a terrorist attack, isn't it? That's pretty hard to do when someone knifes us in the back at work. That's pretty hard to do when someone we know is constantly trying to bring us down. But the Bible teaches us that our response to those kind of people in our life should be characterized by love. Characterized by doing good for them without any anticipation or expectation that they will thank us, that they will ever return the goodness, that they will ever be nice to us ever. Jesus declared in Luke 6.35, love your enemies to good to them and lend without experiencing anything back. Said in Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to use. The Bible teaches those who follow the Bible that we should be a people that are characterized by giving. We should be a generous people. We should be a benevolent people. We should understand the importance of giving back to God, giving back to, to life, giving back to mankind. And that, in fact, we should not embrace a materialistic view of, of life. We should not be living for how much we can gain and how much we can control and how much power we can have. But in fact, our life should be characterized by extreme generosity. First to God, then to man, then to our families, and finally to ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, if you really want to be a Christ follower, if you really want to live this Christian experience, then you got to deny yourself. It's a life of self-denial. 
I've got to deny myself in how I use my time. There has to be a degree of self-denial in how I use my my finances. There has to be a a degree of self-denial in in the way that, that I use my natural talents and abilities and gifts. In other words, my life is to be characterized by self-denial, not by self-pleasing and self-advancement, but by self-denial, to the point that if I follow that command, that guideline that Christ gave me, my life is going to be characterized by times that I actually have to pick up a cross. I actually have to do things that I don't want to do. I've got to go places I don't want to go. I've got to experience things that are hurtful. I've got to experience things that are painful. Jesus is very honest about the Christian life. Mark 8.35, Jesus said, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life from being the gospel will save it. He says, here's how much our lives should be characterized by self-denial. That, in fact, if we live our lives for what we can get and how we can advance ourselves, and if we accomplish all of the things that, that mankind view as the most sought after and, and pleasing things that we can accomplish and own, is that we really stand in the greatest danger of when we stand at death's door of having lived a wasted life. He said, but, on the other hand, if you follow me, if you deny yourself, if you take up your cross, then you can arrive at the threshold of eternity with absolute confidence that you have lived your life with purpose and that you have lived your life in a way that's pleasing to God and that God will welcome you into his eternal kingdom and have reward after reward for you. Jesus declared in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If there's anything about Christianity that sticks in the crawl of the world, it's that claim. Jesus, the only way. No, no, no. You, you, you guys mean that Jesus is one of the ways to God. No. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the only way back to God. Not one of many ways, the only way. And that's, people just get so angry about that. And we, in this pluralistic world that is characterized by extreme, exaggerated tolerance of everyone's point of view, we kind of, when we should be saying, I didn't say it. The Bible declares that. Jesus said in Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. We are also taught to live our lives in such a way that we are expecting that this Jesus, who was a historical figure, who was crucified and allegedly rose from the dead, we are to live our lives believing that at any moment of any day, Jesus is in fact literally coming back again. And that when he comes, he will bring his reward with him, and then he will reward every single person for the way that they invested their life in the kingdom of God. Whether or not they really sold out to Christ. And we're to live our entire life with that expectation and live our entire life seeking that opportunity. Now, if the Bible truly is God's inspired word, 
then, oh, that makes perfect sense. Oh, that, okay. Yeah, I'll buy into that. Because if all of that is based on the fact that the Bible is active, that it's alive, that it's God-breathed, then I know that God is going to fulfill every one of those promises. That yes, then I understand that this life that I'm living right now, that you're living right now, is just one big preparation period for our eternal existence. And when I think of my life, whether it lasts uh, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, I realize that if there really is eternity, and I'm going to live forever and ever and ever and ever, this life is not even a speck on that timeline. And therefore, the way I invest this life will determine part of that experience. And if the Bible is God's inspired word, then I'm in. But if it's man's myth, as so many academics believe. Man, have I wasted my life coming to church, singing songs, giving a tithe of all that I earn and giving above that to world missions and and giving all the hours of service and playing for free in a praise band when I could be out making money. It's all man's myth. We are the biggest fools that have ever lived. Now, with that in mind, again, 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts set Christ apart as Lord. Consider all those challenges, all those demands that we looked at, and many more. It says, we need to put Christ in our hearts. Him in a place that nothing else in our life is. Not our spouses, not if you're single, our, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, not our children, not our jobs, not our, our, our leisure desires, not our materialistic wants. But he said, we need to put Christ in a place that is supreme. He is Lord. When I was younger, I think it was in my later teen years, there was a song that came out. It was a very popular song. We used to sing it all the time in church. And the title of the song was, Jesus Be the Lord of All. And the verse went something like this. In my heart are many kingdoms of worlds that are all my own. Worlds that are only seen by myself and God alone. In the past, when I tried to rule my worlds, they all just seemed to fall apart. So Jesus be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. That's what it's saying. That's what the Bible's saying. Let Jesus, let Christ have absolute, total control of every compartment of your life. Now, for those of you who have elected to trust Christ, it goes on to say this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, when we buy in and we decide we're going to love our enemies and at work, 
we continually reach out and do good to that person at work who's an antagonist to everybody and, and obviously an antagonist to us and they've been mean spirit and stabbing in the back. And when we respond with love, when we respond with forgiveness, when we respond with doing good for that person and the people at work are going, I said, what are you, are you crazy? What are you doing? Don't you understand how much she hates you? Don't you understand how much he's undermined you? What are you doing? We should be willing to give a godly answer, a biblical answer. And to every other life situation. Remember last week, if you were here, we, we rediscovered that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been made God's righteousness. And two weeks ago, we learned that the righteous live by faith. Last week, we learned that the righteous have been given an exalted position within the kingdom of God, and that is ambassadors. Every one of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20 says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, as his ambassadors, our job is to go as many people as we possibly can in our own circle of influence, in the, the new friendships that we will establish, and in the country, in, in the world, we are to be ambassadors for God. We are to help people find reconciliation with God. And we're to do that as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, that's when we start understanding why we're supposed to love our enemies, because God loves us and we were his enemy. That's when all this stuff makes, makes sense. Now, looking back at that verse, so we always need to be give, ready to give a, an answer for why we have embraced this, this radical lifestyle and these radical views. Now, I know so many of us are thinking right now, you know, Pete, this was written 2,000 years ago when people really cared about God. And people cared about religious things and people had an interest in the things of God. But we live in a time where people just don't want to hear it anymore. People don't want ambassadors. We are looked at as, as, as condescending bigots and, and we're, we're looked at as radicals and, and people don't want the message today. You know, it's really easy to fall into that because that's what, what this aggressive anti-Christian uh, movement wants us to believe. But the truth of the matter is, that's not true. I was reminded of that. Pastor Bob sent me this a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was astounded. The Barna Group, which is like a Gallup group, or they, they do national pollings. Barna is one of those groups. Pew Foundation is another group who does that. They did a recent poll on the state of the Bible in America in 2013. So this is, this is right up, hot off the press. This isn't old. This isn't ancient. This is since January. In polling America's view and opinion of the Bible, here was the response. 88% of Americans own a Bible. Not, not a religious book, not the Quran, and not the Book of Mormon, and, and not the writings of Confucius or the writings of Buddha or anything like that. They... 88% of Americans own a Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. Furthermore, 80% of Americans say the Bible is sacred. In other words, they're already kind of predisposed to the idea that the Bible isn't just a book of 66 ancient manuscripts, that there's something different about it, and that something different is sacred. It's of God. 61% of Americans wish they read the Bible more. You might be in that group. I am. 
Furthermore, 77% of Americans believe that America is on a moral decline. They think we're going down. How many would agree with that, huh? Yeah. And they say that the chief culprits for this moral deterioration in our culture, in our lives, 25% believe that it's corruption from corporate greed. And, and we know there's been a lot of corporate greed, and we, we're living every day the result of that with this, this housing implosion that happened, and we can't get out of this recession that we've been stuck in for years and years and years now. And all that was based on corporate greed. People cutting deals and people breaking the law so they could make money at our expense and our nation's expense. 29% blame it on the influence of the media, the negative influence of the media. How many jump on that bus? I jump on that bus too, right? The media is pumping all this garbage into our culture and into our lives and, and, and causing us to, 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 to accept things that, that are contrary to what God has clearly stated. But the highest percentage, 32% believe that the moral decline in America is due to a lack of Bible reading. How amazing is that? You know, that, when, I, when I saw that the statistic, I had an immediate flashback in my mind to, to being in elementary school. And I remember when I went to elementary school, and I went to public school, I didn't go to Christian school. In fact, I don't even remember there were Christian schools when I went to public school. But every day started like this. We would gather in the classroom, the teacher would ring the bell, and we would all sit at our desk, and then she would say, okay, class, stand. The class would stand. We would all put our right hand over our heart, and we would pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. That would be followed by the teacher taking the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible, and reading a scripture passage to the class. That would be followed by the teacher leading the class in a morning prayer. Now, when I went to public school, the rebellious pupils, classmates, the ones who were just contrary, the ones who, 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 who just wouldn't follow suit, they were committing such heinous acts as chewing gum. They were skipping school. They were cheating on tests. They wouldn't line up in a straight line. But I don't remember a day of my public school education ever even thinking or worrying about coming into my school and worrying about some crazed gun person shooting and killing people. I don't remember a day when we're worried about another student cornering a student in the bathroom and stabbing them repeatedly with a knife. I don't remember a day, even in, in junior high and high school, of any young girl coming to our school ever worried about being raped in some secluded spot in the school. Listen, when we began to remove the Bible from our culture, from our lives, from our schools, the natural response was a spiral of moral decay. We think that we've lost the young generation. That generation 18 to 24 years old are 
They're called the mosaics. They're called Generation Y. They're called millennials. There's a generation coming up after them now called Generation Z. They're just gathering the statistical data. But in this response, they were included in this poll. And surprisingly, they showed a great interest in knowing what the Word of God, the Bible, says about many important life areas. I know you can't read all these, so let me help you. It said, interest in the Bible's wisdom on dealing with illness and death. All adults who were polled said, about 28% of them said, yeah, I'd like to know what the Bible has to say about that. 33% of Generation Y wanted to know what the Bible says about that. Addressing family conflict, 24% of all adults said, yeah, I'd like to know what the Bible says about family conflict. 40% of millennials said, we want to know what the Bible says about all this conflict that's happening in the family. About parenting, 22% of the population want to know about that. 42% of Generation Y says, I want to know what God has to say about parenting. Romance and sexuality, 17% across, 30% of millennials want to know what the Bible says about sexuality. Romance and and dating and relationships, 16% across the board, 35%. The influence of technology, 12% of the general public, 14% of millennials. And the reason they weren't as interested in that area is because they're the ones that understand it all. We're the ones trying to figure it out. Dealing with divorce, 8% of the general society, 15% of millennials said, you know what, I'd like to know what the Bible says about divorce. You know what that says? That says that the young generation isn't lost that the young generation still wants to know. But sadly, in this report, it showed that although the opportunity is still great, and although among the, this generation Y, the millennial generation, there's actually a resurgence of interest in understanding what the Bible says about some of the most critical areas of life, that those percentages every year are going down. Jesus, as recorded in Matthew's biography of Jesus' life in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, Jesus was entering the city and he was looking at the people and Jesus' heart was broken. Matthew records that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at, at his own people and his heart was just broken. He had compassion on them and he said, look at them. They're so lost. Life is beaten up on them so much. They're so harassed. There's no guidance. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. Everything is crumbling around them. They're like sheep that has no shepherd to protect them. Like sheep that have no shepherd to feed them. Then he said to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. In other words, Jesus said, you know what? There's no lack of people out there who need to hear what I have to say. There's no lack of people out there who need to to rediscover what God has promised them. He said, the problem is there's no one going out doing it. I got to believe that as Jesus looks down at 21st century America, as Jesus looks down at South Florida, I got to believe his heart is broken. I believe he's looking at us with compassion, thinking, look at them. They're so harassed. 
They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. Life is just crumbling apart. And once again, as the Barnapole demonstrated that the harvest is plentiful. It's not that people don't want to know. The problem is those who know aren't taking the truth to them. God's word or man's myth? If it's God's word, then people who have already expressed and interest in understanding it need to have the opportunity to be introduced to it. If it isn't God's word and it's man's myth, what are we doing here? What are we, we, we just trying to believe in something as a crutch? Well, in the series that we're going into, We are not going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is God's word. Because the Christian experience is based on faith. And so God didn't give us absolute, absolute guaranteed proof that the Bible is God-breathed, that it is active and alive. But what we are going to discover is that those of us who embrace it as the inspired word of God that is alive and active today is not based on blind faith. It's not based on just hopes and maybes. and It's not some kind of a crutch that we hold on to as Christians. Now, I'm going to get into the meat of this two weeks from today. And the reason I'm going to wait two weeks is twofold. One, I want to give you time to go out and speak to members of your family and coworkers and neighbors and friends who really are skeptical about the relevance of the Bible for our day. And I want you to to really have time to to create an invitation to them. Say, hey, come to our church. We're going to have this, this amazing series that's going to be talking about why belief in the Bible is not blind faith, why it's not a foolish belief. But for today, the vast majority of us who are here today come here already to one degree or another believe that the Bible, like 80% of Americans, is sacred, that there's something godly about it. And so today, as we close our service, let us receive comfort from it. This has been a tough week for America. I was horrified to see the Boston Marathon pictures and the explosions, bombs, another senseless act of violence. I've been more heartbroken to hear the stories of those who lost legs and arms, who lost loved ones. And I've literally sat in my chair listening to some of those interviews with tears coming down my cheeks. God bless them. God bless these families. A few days later, this horrible explosion, this fertilizer plant in Texas, more devastation to yet another group of our citizens. 
And these are things that have just happened just this week on the national level. And, and we, we empathize with our fellow citizens who are in pain and dealing with grief today. But the truth of the matter is some of you came in here with your own challenges. Some of you came in here with your own financial burdens. You've come in here with your relational burdens. You've come in here with your vocational burdens. And you've come in here with your health burdens and many others. Well, the Bible, this book that is alive and active, that is God-breathed, has a message for you. Jesus in Matthew Chapter 11, verses 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What Jesus was saying and what he says to you today, those burdens are too heavy for you to carry by yourself. Let me help you carry those. Give them to me. Trust me. Believe that I'm there with you. I'm going to ask Pete Clark to come, our chairman of the Board of Elders, and I'm going to ask him to lead a prayer for all of you who are here today carrying those kind of burdens. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for being the source of our strength. But we come today, Lord, to thank you for reminding us this day that a burden by definition is something that we are taking upon ourselves to resolve. But through this lesson and through your provisions, Lord, we know that we are not to accept that uh, burden on our own, but rather to look at you. As you say in your scripture, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And, and the response is the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remind us today, Lord, that you are a prayer away, that your presence is only a prayer away, and that burden that we are preoccupied is keeping us away from your presence. We also come today, Lord, to acknowledge that uh, through those prayers that you provide provisions. You remind us that we should trust in you and lean not on our own understanding but in all thy ways acknowledge you and you would direct our paths Lord we know that you will provide a way for us additional Lord we know that because we are humble because we are weak because we have a tendency to depend on ourselves that you choose this uh, scripture today to remind us that we should uh, look to you that if we're looking at ourselves, we're trying to, to resolve our concerns by our own strengths. And by, by virtue of that, that strength is a weakness because it separates us from you. Rather, we should take that burden, Lord, lift it up to you as a care and concern, and realize that that weakness that we've acknowledged in ourselves becomes a strength because we're reaching to you and allowing you to work in our lives to make a difference. Thank you, Lord for the power of your word and for the power of your presence to provide for us. We know by your scripture in Jeremiah thirty-three eighteen that by your sovereign strength, you have made the heavens and earth. 
that nothing is too hard for you. Lord, let us count on that strength to lift our burdens, to give us that peace, to make us the person you want us to be. And in doing so, Lord, sharing you and your strength and presence in our lives with others so that you are glorified, not us. Amen. Someone here, though, today, and not maybe, but does, have another burden. And that burden is you're carrying not the weight of some life circumstance. You're carrying the burden of guilt. You're carrying the burden of shame. You know right now that your walk with Christ isn't what it needs to be. Maybe you're struggling with some obsessive addiction. Maybe you're struggling with some hidden sin. And it's become a weight on you. David said that after he had sinned with Bathsheba, he said that my strength was sapped like the heat in summer. Some of you come today and that's how you feel. You feel guilty before the Lord and there's shame before the Lord today. And you're worried about your relationship with him. Well, this book that is God-breathed, that's living and active, declares to you in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I invite you to allow God to restore your peace today by sincerely confessing and repenting of whatever it is that has that burden on your life. I've asked just... Lazama, who is the chairman of our board of deacons, to come and lead us in a prayer for, for those of you who struggle with that burden. Dear Lord, we come to you today because you told us to cast our burden on you, Lord, and not to be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. Lord, you are our great God, and whatever our anxiety is, Lord, Whatever our burden is, whatever it is that we're facing in our lives, Lord, you ask us to leave it at your feet, Lord, and, and that you will come through for us. Lord, we ask that you will touch each and every one of us here this morning who comes with uh, an issue in our lives, a, a burden that we, we feel that is too heavy for us to carry, Lord. We come with a, a certain um, addiction, Lord. We ask that you... You filter our hearts, Lord, and ask and we, that you come, that you cover us with your spirit, Lord, and then we can turn this over to you, and with faith and with trust, we know that you will, Lord, you will take care of our problems. We thank you, Lord. We uh, thank you for the service this morning and for your word. Let us carry that word with us everywhere we go this week, into, our, into the classroom, Lord, into our work, into our household. And Lord, we need to think of you at each and every moment of our lives and let you take care of it for us, Lord. We thank you and we love you and we adore you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Then there may be one more need here. And if it's here, it's the greatest of all these needs we've talked about. There may be the need here for some man, some woman, who has never reconciled themselves eternally with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe there's a man or a woman here today and you're living like the vast population of the planet thinking that somehow you'll live a good enough life that finally when you die and you stand before God, he's going to see your heart and he's going to see that you, you did the best you could and God will have compassion on you and allow you into heaven. Well, this 
Bible that is God-breathed, that's living and active, declares that no one will ever get to heaven that way. In fact, it declares that the reason God sent Jesus Christ was because we could never accomplish that. That's why Jesus himself said, in that verse we looked at, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he says, no one comes to the Father except through the sacrifice that I made on the cross for sin. If you're here today, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're still putting your hope and confidence in yourself or anything else but that cross and what Jesus did on that cross and the gift that God wants to give you today. The Bible declares, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Would you do that right now? As I help and pray for you, Father, I pray for that man, that woman here today who's never trusted Christ as his or her Savior. And right now, you're convicting him or her about that. Your spirit is reaching out to them, and they, 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 they sense your presence. And your spirit is bearing witness with their spirit that the words I'm speaking now are true and words they need to respond to. And right now, in the humbleness of their heart, they're willing to, to transfer their confidence off of their own goodness onto the cross in Christ. And right now, they would pray something like this, God, I confess to you my need of forgiveness. I haven't lived a perfect life. And I get it now, God, I'm never going to live a good enough life to impress you to the degree that you're going to allow me into heaven because of how good I am. Now it makes sense. That's why you sent Jesus. You sent Jesus because we never could do that. And so Jesus had to die on the cross for sin. And Jesus, who lived a perfect life, became the only worthy sacrifice for sin. And because Jesus was willing to die on the cross, I get it, God. That's why you have given him alone the authority to grant eternal life. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to do that for me right now. Jesus, today, I believe on you. I believe that you're the Son of God, that you, you were crucified, buried, and that you rose again. And I believe that God has given you the authority to forgive sin. And so, Jesus, right now, I'm asking you to be my eternal Savior. Forgive my sin. Pay my sin debt with your blood. Adopt me into the family of God. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Now look up here. This Bible declares to anyone who humbles themselves in that way. In John 1.12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you just humbled yourself and trusted in Christ this morning, God has now made you his child. You are a member of the eternal family of God. And you don't have to worry about your eternal destination anymore. God has given you the promise of eternal life. If you made that decision today, just before we leave, in just a moment, on that connection card that's in your bulletin, I'm going to ask you to fill that card out in its entirety, legibly. Then on the back, on the top, it says, My Decision Today. There's a box that says, I blank trust that Christ is my Savior. Put your first name in that box. Check that box. And when you leave, drop it in one of the offering kiosks. 
And what we're going to do as a pastoral staff is we're going to pray for you. And then we're also going to send you a little booklet in the mail entitled, You Can Be Sure. It will help you to better understand what God just did for you. Let us reach out to you and encourage you. As we leave, once again, those who can stay and help us with the chairs, please do. As we leave, please do remember to give your tithes and your offerings and your mission offerings to the Lord at the kiosk. Let's continue to be a faithful church so that the word of God can get to all he wants to hear, and that's everyone. Let's stand, and as we conclude our service today, let's praise him once again. Sonia.